Mate, you're not podcasting from your garage. This is great news. You've no back in the office. Back in the office. Upgraded. Yep. Yep. New office. You know this. We spoke about this last time. So get some new material, Michael. Um, but it's exciting because it means that you must be putting people back into jobs, which must be mates. Yeah, it's it's it, that that part of it is definitely good. It's um. Yeah, it's picked up heaps over the last... Each week we seem to be getting uh, sort of twice as busy as the week um, prior and that's been happening for probably three weeks, I think, since New South Wales, Sydney started reopening. Um, so there's a lot more confidence out there, which is awesome. And it just keeps getting busier. So, mate, we're, we're probably not that far off where we were um, at the beginning, I guess. That's actually a complete lie. We're probably only at about 60%, but... There's less of us, so we feel busy. It's good. How about you? Um, hard to read, really, but like, yeah, in our time out anyway, there's a lot of interest in going out, so people are starting to go back to features like things to do in Sydney and best restaurants and this type of thing. So it's demonstrating that people are primed, ready, willing, able, at least to consider going out. So that's good news if you're me. Yeah, mate, that's awesome. Nice, and you've arranged today's guest, who is uh, who is the um, the person that we'll be speaking to today. So Paul Waterson, who is the CEO of Australian Venue Co, and part of the reason we wanted to get him on really is that there is the 30th of September cliff that people are talking about, and which is where a lot of the government relief mechanisms disappear. So how do hospitality businesses in particular reopen? gear up and then navigate that 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 critical date. So Paul mm. and I have been working quite closely together in terms of really trying to tell and extract from industry a lot of data that can help support uh, advocacy work that demonstrates accurately to government the relief mechanisms that will be needed as we go forward. So yeah. not just simple as please extend JobKeeper, it's extend JobKeeper or modified in this way or this is how our businesses are trading. This is this is where the numbers are at, basically. Um, so, so I was keen to get him on, and and I guess his scale of business is the thing that is interesting because he's operating across multiple territories, uh, and and that I hope would give him some perspective that we can then share with our listeners on what's going on in other territories, what's working, what what are the trends, what are we seeing, as mm. as we all gear up for reopen. Yeah, I think he'd be a, a, an incredible guest, COVID or not, you know, like <laughs> the sky, scale um, of their business, diversity of it and the rate at which they've grown um, is pretty unparalleled in the industry. So I'm very much looking forward to having a, a uh, conversation with him. As am I. Let's do it. Welcome, Paul Watterson, to the Back of House podcast. Um, great to have you on. We've been uh, working together for a number of years now. We never had the opportunity, so welcome. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Luke. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. So we'll come to the impact of COVID on the business shortly, but just for listeners who might not be familiar with Australian Venue Co.'s operations more broadly, are you able just to give us an overview, just in terms of size, scale, operations across territories, things of that nature? Yeah, sure, Mike. Yeah, so we've got 170 venues across Australia and New Zealand, and we're doing about 650 million in annual sales. Uh, we've got about 4,200 uh, team team members across the venues. We're, we're predominantly a food and beverage operator, so about 50% of our revenue comes from beverage, 25% from food, and and also uh, 18% from gaming. Um, we're a business that's grown predominantly through acquisition since 2014. Uh, and we, we, I, I sort of like to refer as our business model as a bit of a reverse uh, mullet model in that we try and have the party up the front and, and business down the back. So while we have the individual venues running their own brands and personalities, we have good systems and processes behind the scenes and that allows us to run a pretty broad gamut of uh, pubs and bar venues across Australia and New Zealand. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I guess like the, the scale of the operation over time has obviously led to some, your ability to deliver on efficiencies. Is that a fair observation? 
Oh, yeah, I think it's it's allowed us to put in some sort of systems and processes that perhaps we can afford compared to individual operators, and that allows us to manage the business pretty well across a re- really broad group of pubs. So it's probably the sort of thing that would have been really hard to do 20 years ago, but I think the systems have evolved now to the point where it's relatively simpler than it perhaps might have been in the past. Yeah. What's a couple of examples without giving away, you know, IP, but like, you know, just some examples of things that you know, that technology or the times have allowed for? Yeah, I think the, the, the point of sale systems are excellent now. So if you look at things, we use H&L, but if you look at that, it enables you to manage your database of product, it enables you to decrement your product as you sell it, have pretty much a live stock take within the venue. I think movement away from cash to cards. So about nearly 80% of our turnover comes from cards, not cash now. So you've got great controls of cash that you wouldn't have perhaps otherwise had before. I think things like managing the team and having staff. So we've got things like good clock on, clock off systems now that are geofenced. So we know when people are in venue and when staff knock off. So you've got a good view on what hours people are working. All of those are things that perhaps weren't available like as, as little as five, six years ago. So I suspect that's what's really helped facilitate our growth. And we'll probably jump around a bit on this, but one of the things we, uh, that comes to mind, Luke, you recall when we interviewed Brett Sargent having moved from Maryvale to Colonial Leisure Group, mm. one of the things he was talking about was personnel and being at a certain size and scale before you can start recruiting key people into key positions. Is that, uh, I think that's a fair recollection, Luke, would you agree? And then, Paul, yeah. that the size and scale of venue has allowed you to sort of focus on? Yeah, I think that's right, Mike. I mean, we're, we're luckily enough to be at the size now where I can have a general manager just focusing on greenfield developments, a really strong property team. We've got 100 people in our sales and marketing team, uh, a good operation structure, standalone HR structure. So it, it just makes it a lot easier in my role than perhaps when you get bigger, counterintuitively, that sort of becomes a bit easier to run than, than harder because you can get really good people in those roles. Yeah. And people... It might jump, um, again, Mike, you said it might jump around a bit, but just on that, I mean, how, how do you um, reconcile the volume of people that you would have at that sort of more head office group sort of capacity level um, commensurate to the size of the business that sits below it i mean is it kind of more of a feel thing or is it is it is it quite um empirical in terms of the way that you would analyze the, the numbers versus at, at the top versus number of venues and turnover yeah it's an interesting question luke and i think it's one of those things that you always grapple with with a growing business we try and focus our resources into those things that add value to the venues particularly sales and marketing so more than half our head office focuses on our sales and marketing team and then the rest of the business is around support structures to venues. Um, But at the same time as that bottom-up approach, we look top-down and we look at, okay, well, what's a reasonable... Uh, head office cost as a percentage of of revenue, and in other businesses we've been in, we've sort of always operated about that three to four percent of sales as head office overhead. So we sort of triangulate a bit of a top down and a bottom up approach to see, you know, what what's right. But you don't always get it right. So it's a large scale business, and I think that we uh, have had sizes of venues on uh, or businesses from small to large, but. I've got to ask you a couple of personal ones because uh, I think maybe 18 months ago we were sitting in front of the nighttime and lockout inquiry uh, and trying to, I guess, talk about the balance between health, police and getting it right. And you revealed this, Perla, that you began life in another profession altogether and it was in medic in, in the medical side of things. So was it nursing or as a, <laughs> something along those lines? Or am I, I'm really cloudy. Yeah, yeah. No, you're you're right. I actually I actually started my career as a as a nurse and worked in intensive care at hospital in Melbourne for about five or six years and managed that unit for a short time. So to be honest, I'm a bit of an accidental embarrassingly a bit of an accidental publican Um, but you know I I love the industry and being new to the industry it's a very dynamic place and a place I hope to stay in for quite a long while. And what like so just maybe chart that progression because one of the things that we've been trying to do with the 
podcast since its inception is to demonstrate career paths for people or entry points to it. Myself, you know, I've come into the sector from the side. Um, so start life as a nurse. Um, you obviously develop some skills around talent and, and management and then you, you know, just one day go, oh, I might just go run venue code. Like how did, how did you get from, how did you get from like, you know, running an intensive care unit through to, to where you are today? Yeah, it's uh, it's been interesting progression. I, I probably, um, you know, I really enjoyed working in intensive care, but I probably had a bit of a funny career move. I was off on a golf trip with my mates, and one of my mates uh, drove the car into a tree, and I broke my hand. And I thought I was out of action for a good three months, and thought, well, you know, I couldn't actually work as a nurse. So I got into a couple of management roles in hospitals. And then uh, moved across to a private healthcare company called HealthScope, and I worked there for ten years, uh, running uh, their pathology division, running their New South Wales hospitals. Lived up in Sydney uh, for about five or six years, and and then met some of my business partners that I've worked with since then. So after being there for about ten years, I moved across to a group called Spotless and worked there for five years, and. And then there was three of uh, the senior management from Spotless who we were getting towards the end of our time at Spotless and looking at what we'd do next. And, and um, you know, it's every boy's dream to own a pub, even just have somewhere to drink. But it was never really going to be a career path for us. So we bought our first pub, which was the Wayside in South Melbourne, and, and got in there and started running it and thought it's a really interesting space. It's a really fragmented market still, hadn't been consolidated. It's a fun place to work. And then we sort of rolled up a heap of venues from there. So our first big buy, we bought a, a group called the Open Door Group who had 16 pubs down in Melbourne and and they were great because that allowed us to bring all our sort of operating systems and processes in. Um, and from there, we, we bought Keystone Luke, one of your old stomping grounds and, mm-hmm. and got to know the Sydney market a bit. And then we bought a group called Publican Group and that's where we got our marketing approach from. So we've tried to take a bit out of all the businesses we've we've brought in order to try and build what AVC has become today. Well, quite a journey. And just so in terms of like the, um, I guess, the, the teams, um, and I think that obviously we're going to get into sort of the discussion of COVID onto, on the business in the meantime. But I guess um, uh, let's just zero in on talent specifically. Um, and, and, and talk about that for a moment. So you've got businesses in multiple states that you've been pulling together and building up over time. Uh, and then um, I guess that even down to the, the and, and Luke touched on this earlier in, in one of the questions, but the, the workforce is largely decentralised. Um, what's the management structure look like? Yeah, the typically way we run it, Mike, is we have about every seven or eight venues report to an area manager or a state manager if we only have seven or eight venues within that state. And then those area managers report through to Craig Allison, who's our chief operating officer. Uh, so we try and give the venue managers quite a lot of autonomy at, at what type of venue they want to run and what type of patrons they want to attract to that venue. And one of the things we take great pride in is really focusing on bringing up managers through the business. So it's a key metric that we look at is how many of our venue managers came up through our system as duty managers, assistant venue managers into venue manager roles. Because obviously, you know, each business has its own quirks and it just makes life a lot easier. We find our most successful managers are those who have been up through our business and our system for quite some time. Uh, but at the same time, you, you have all those systems that I spoke about previously to help manage broad groups of staff across the business. You've got central rostering, good clocking, clock out system. Our online training program is very sophisticated now that we've been able to grow over time. Uh, we, what we've also, uh, as we pivoted to more remote trans, um, discussion with staff, we in order spend an inordinate amount of time on planes previously, but more recently we've just got Zoom calls with staff every week that we just sort of get on the Zoom and just 
ask and answer any questions anyone wants and you get, you know, quite great, frank questions from staff about where you're at and where the business is at as well. So we're just trying to create very open dialogue between the teams, which can be challenging when you've got over 4,000 people that you work with. But some of the greatest ideas that we have just percolate up from uh, the guys and girls working behind the bars in the kitchens. And, and the good thing is some of those you can then take and then apply across your, across your group. So that's part of the benefit of, of being our size. And with the decentralisation, I mean, you, you, given you have so many, um, what, 170 venues across multiple states, multiple countries, are you, how has the further or increased decentralisation caused by COVID, how is that um, sort of being managed and being, um, I guess, approached within the business um, in relation to, you know, even just your sales and marketing and, and teams that are typically quite collaborative? I mean, it's mm-hmm. impossible for a venue team to obviously be decentralised because their work is in a specific place. You can't do it elsewhere. But with sales and marketing teams, for example, um, you know, from my experience, they're typically individuals that love being around other people because that's just their personality type. Has that been challenging or increasingly challenging to overcome as this has sort of been more and more prolonged? Yeah, it's so true, Luke. I think you need to understand the look and feel and tempo of a venue and you need to spend time in the venues to do that. Uh, we're mm. lucky in that we have sales and marketing people in each state, so they've been able to maintain uh, good connectivity to the venues. And Craig, our Chief Operating Officer, right at the start of this, moved up to Tweed where he's got a house there so he could keep a close eye on the Queensland venues while I stayed down here in Melbourne. So we've maintained that face-to-face connectivity with the venues. Uh, but yeah, I'd be lying if I said it was perfect. It's, it's a lot yeah, more right. discussion over Zoom, discussion over the phone, uh, talking with the venue managers, but you do, there's nothing like getting into the venues and just the look, feel, is the lighting right, is the temperature right, is the music right? And and at the moment, we're in that space where you just can't do that. Mm. Another uh, question just in relation to people, I thought, with, with your integration of um, existing businesses, you know, it's it's hard enough opening a new business on your own and instilling into a new team the culture that you've you've had across a business already. Let alone, I think, you know, I've never been a part of this process, but acquiring a business, um, acquiring a keystone or a publican group or a um, any other operation that's already got its own culture. I mean, how do you tend to approach that? Because uh, the, the culture of those businesses is so inherent to the operations mm-hmm. that they're running and they typically hire people for businesses. So, uh, you know, in terms of the, sorry, the, um, the product associated with an individual venue perhaps. So is, that, is there a pretty sort of drawn out, not drawn out potentially, but um, prescribed process for integrating new businesses? Yeah, well, there's certainly a prescribed system for integrating new businesses, but in terms of culture, it's much more organic because you find each venue has its own culture and then you try and overlay that with a group of core values, I guess, as a business that you want to have. And if you look at some of our venues, we've got, you know, really uh, young youth-orientated venues that are a lot of fun, like the cargo bars of the world, where you've got a heap of guys and girls in their late teens, early to mid-20s who just want to get out there and have a whole heap of fun. And at the same time, we've got venues up there in, say, central Queensland, where the team's probably in their 40s and 50s, been together for a much longer time, totally different skill set. And they those venues have a totally different culture to what our um, a cargo bar culture is, as it should, because they're trying to attract a totally different clientele. Mm. So what we try and do is not break the culture of the venue and the business we've acquired it because we've acquired it because it's a very good business in the first place. So the last thing you want to do is try and do, draw a top-down culture to the business. But at the same time, like we, we like to have you know, our core values and they're things that we look at like agility. We want people to make decisions quickly on the ground and implement them. You know, they've got to be resilient because it's a really tough industry. So they've got to be able to... Um, managed through a diversity as we're seeing at the moment. Uh, innovation, we want to 
we have this mantra that you want people to have a crack and there's nothing wrong with doing something and it, it not working. Uh, but if you do something that does work, it gives us the opportunity to then apply those learnings over our whole group potentially or a subset of our group. Um, and then probably the other ones are positivity and, and taking ownership to it's your venue, you run it as your venue, you rep- sure you report up to us, but you need to be accountable for your customer service, your controls, your revenue, uh, and each venue gets its full P&L each week and we share that really broadly. So that way we're trying to find that special source, I guess, of each venue having its own culture and not us not stuffing up that venue's culture when we acquire <laughs> it at the yeah. same time as try to have that broad overarching values that are important to us as well. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I would imagine there'd be few businesses either inside or outside of hospitality that have the diversity of, of individuals. Like when you, as I said, you think about the venues that might exist in Northern Queensland, for example, down to a Pago Bar or to a busy Melbourne sort of inner city pub, the um, the challenges must be pretty significant. But also the rewards, obviously, and having that kind of internal diversity would be pretty amazing also. Yeah, absolutely. And I think those sort of venues, they attract the people who like to work in those venues. So, you know, you're not going to get some of the guys who work in cargo or bungalow want to go up and work in these North Queensland venues anyway. So, you sort of end up uh, the staff work together, similar mix to the patrons and and that way you get you know, a, a great outcome in terms of what how the venue goes. It's, it's, it's quite interesting looking at that business versus some of the others we've interviewed, Hey Luke, because of the, I guess, mm. more family style or uh, more personality driven. I don't know if they're fair descriptions and then trying to escalate that or build that out over a, a, a wide, you know, diverse territorial or type yeah. of information. It's um, yeah. it, some of those things. Yeah, I mean, the closest would be probably Shane from SSP, from who we interviewed last. But even then, that is a brand-driven proposition where they're representing multiple sort of QSRs. So it's it's probably the the cultural, as in working across multiple countries, challenge in that um, business. We might just change tack for a bit and and I guess, Paul, one thing we are quite keen to talk to you about specifically has been COVID, its impact and listeners, Paul's uh, Venuco is a member of the Nighttime Industries Association and with that hat on, we've been in dialogue relatively closely the last month or two, partly because from my perspective, we want to understand the scale of some of these things. And when you're talking to a small venue, you get one view. When you talk to a big operator, you're potentially able to to get a better view. And then from that, take that and present that to governments and decision makers and say, look, this is a good snapshot of what's happening across, you know, a territory or a, a group of businesses. Do you want to just give us a bit of an overview of how COVID's impacted Benuco? And please uh, include the New Zealand uh, aspect of your business as well in, in that response. Yeah, thanks, Mike. I think there's probably the two stages. There's a shutdown stage, which really impacted everyone equally, including New Zealand, in that all our venues really shut down that week of the 23rd of March. So you've had that issue around and complexity around essentially closing the venues down. But now we're at the stage where the venues are reopening and because we're seeing different uh, disease profile in each of the different territories, we're getting quite a lot of diversity in terms of how the venues are going. So, you know, if you look at, take the the good examples, you look at a place like New Zealand uh, that are now back to about only about 13% below last year's revenue. So, they've all but recovered. And I think the only reason they're still 13% down is because they don't have any international tourism at the moment. And, and a lot of their international students are away. So our venues are, uh, we've got Dr. Rudy's in the viaduct there at Auckland, and that's a very tourist-driven area. Uh, and then we've got a lot of venues down in Wellington as well. And because they've got a lot of international students and the uni uh, 
not being operating at the moment, that, that's impacting that. You've got Northern Territory, which was probably one of the first venues to reopen on the 15th of May. And similarly, they're back up to about 80, 82% of what was their previous volume. They're working with very few restrictions at the moment, but equally they don't have any tourism. So that's probably taken that cream off that last bit of sales. Uh, WA are operating at uh, one in two square metres at the moment, and equally that's going reasonably well. They're only down about 14 15% on what they would normally be. Having said that, we've got a couple of venues uh, like the Avery that's uh, more of a, uh, a venue similar to Cargo Bungalow in that it's a rooftop bar, a lot of dancing, a lot of socialising that is not going on at the moment. So they're, they're the goods. Um, the probably the uglies, if you go to the other end of the spectrum, are places like CBDs in particular. Melbourne and Sydney are a real issue in that our revenue is down 90% in the Melbourne CBD venues at the moment. Um, and that looks like maintaining that way for at least the next couple of weeks. Uh, Sydney, uh, similarly, we've got those venues along King Street Wharf. We've got four venues along um, King Street Wharf, and you look at the foot traffic, it's down from 300,000 a day at its peak to less than 30,000 last week. So you've got 10% of the foot traffic. The venues are down about 70% in sales in Sydney. Uh, and then you look at the sort of middle middle states like uh, a Queensland, a South Australia, and they're sort of somewhere in between those two extremes. So the recovery is different in different areas, uh, but what we're certainly seeing is CBD venues are really suffering and will continue to suffer because they just don't have the foot traffic at the moment. Uh, the one in four square metres rule is a real issue for those large format venues because if you look at something like Bungalow 8, uh, normal capacity, routinely there'd be 1,200 people through there on a Friday, Saturday night. At the moment, its capacity is 470. So, you know, it's unsurprising that those venue sales are really miles down on what they would mm. normally be. It's And just I'm clicking on a few of those things. So I want to come back to the CBD, but can we just focus on the different physical distancing regimes that are applying? So, you know, New Zealand's would be, I think, in certain circumstances, it's basically down to one metre in a small venue for first, um, between people. And then four square metres uh, in New South Wales and, and two in WA. Like, there's a lack of commonality at a minimum, I'd observe. Like, what's your in, um, view on that? Yeah, well, in New Zealand, there's essentially no rules now over per square metre. So you're back to normal operations. WA, it's one in two. Northern Territory, it's a take a sensible approach. There's no specific guideline. Uh, it, it's really challenging to manage, but I think these the one in two and one in four is near impossible for these large formats venues to operate efficiently and I think given some of the venues could at the same time you've got cap on a per space basis so in Victoria we've got a cap on 20 per space now you could have one in 10 square meters in some of our Victorian venues and you could if you can only have 20 so it's a bit all over the shop at the moment and it's you know, I, I, I worry sometimes that you know how evidence-based is it is it? What is the, the mechanism in which this would roll off? And do people really understand that the impact this has on the business? Because clearly, your fixed costs are based on what is the cap capacity of the venues, the rents, your, your heating bills are all based on size of venue. Yeah, it's, uh, it's the one aspect. And obviously, these things are relatively moving uh, relatively quickly. And we spent, I think, Friday just trying to pull together a table, which you've probably got actually, of just the different things that are going on in different states and uh, just to summarise it because it's, it's it's hard to, as you say, identify an evidence-based uh, approach when the evidence is all conflicting and mm -hmm. it isn't necessarily correlating to community transmission. So anyway, that's a bit of a work in progress. Just on the CBDs, so I guess the uh, discussion particularly um, we've had is is just around that overall lack of fall in the first instance. Uh, I think that the challenges of people's approach to public transport in coming in for work, 
on top of it, people being encouraged actively to work from home still. Like, uh, how do we get our CBDs back functioning? Uh, I suppose uh, what, what what can industry do and what do you think, you know, the discussion with government should be? Well, I think there's probably two parts to that. I think from an industry perspective, where this industry is perhaps different to other industries I've been in is that there's a, a paucity of data. And if you look, the industry is, you know, awesome at telling a yarn and telling an anecdote. But what we're not good at is going to government with good pieces of data saying, you know, here are our sales here, here's what the impact is on staff and and giving great data to inform policymakers to enable them to, to um assist us in run the business. And if you look at a good example, Mike, as you said, when we were working in with the nighttime economy piece up there in Sydney, uh, being a Victorian-based business, we, we had a lot of data that showed that there wasn't a great correlation between restrictive licensing arrangements and violent incidents within the CBDs. Uh, but without that data, it's really hard to go cap in hand to government and say, you know, here's, here's two examples. One Melbourne CBD example, 24-hour nighttime economy, 24-hour operating licences, you know, lower security costs, lower number of violent incidences and similar bars within Sydney in similar locations. So I think as an industry, we need to be able to go with solid data to to inform policymakers. And now, as recently as last week, we're having discussion with Treasury on what the trajectory looks like for our venues. And they have a huge appetite for information on on how we're going. And they, they genuinely want to help us, but we need to go to them uh, with with real data to support that. And I think that goes for local governments in uh, particularly Melbourne and Sydney as well in terms of what uh, trading restrictions generate, what outcome is really important. Yeah, and I think mm. the uh, observation I would have is just the speed at which we are not giving data across at the moment is a real hamper, as in this, this um, I think the industry's if it does do data, it's used to doing it in a like slow way or, or not even. Whereas in real time at the moment, decision makers are looking for what inf- information you can give them and uh, and our lack of training in pulling it together firstly and then the speed at which we're delivering it are, are kind of confounding the, 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 the response. I'd agree. I, I mean, I've not come across a bureaucrat that's not interested. Uh, they're just yeah. the right information to help them make the right decisions, I suppose. So um, we'll, we'll link to this in the show notes, but our there's an industry survey that we're doing at the moment which is aimed specifically at some of these uh, metrics that we're talking through to cap- capture a, a pattern over May, June, July, so that hopefully as we look at government relief me- mechanisms coming to August, September, they can be calibrated based on actual information. Luke, did you want to chip in there? I think you were about to... Uh, uh, I'll- probably acting more as a listener here because this is a topic you two share much more distinctly than, than what you do with me. Um, what, what kind of information are they looking for? Um, I guess that can go to either of you. And and um, I guess is this to inform policy on the back end and, and, and support measures? It's, it's, it's not relevant to the easing of restrictions, right, because I'm assuming that is driven by community transmission and and kind of data relating to the actual virus itself. Is that is that fair a fair assumption? Yeah, I think it's both, Luke. I think at the state based, the industry deserves to know whether there's been transmission generated within our sector, because that will tell us for all the initiatives that we are implementing, whether they're being effective. And as far as I can tell, there's not community transmission happening within our sector, Touchwood, and all the venues I go around to are trying really, really hard because we know we're in the spotlight to make sure that there there isn't. So I think the state governments owe us data to, to show us, are we doing the right thing and is there community transmission? Because that should inform the easing of restrictions. I think for the federal government, it's probably the other way in that they don't really understand the impact of the support structures that they're giving now. They were put together really quickly. What impact that's likely to have as the restrictions roll off? 
But if you look at the economic impact or you look at the broader impact of this virus, it disproportionately affects the older people and the younger people. So it affects the older people based on, you know, very poor health outcomes, but it affects the younger people from an economic perspective. So if you look at the jobs data that came out last week, you know, 800,000 jobs lost for people aged 15 to 34. So 63% of the jobs lost since February were 15 to 34-year-olds. And it's no coincidence that you know, 71% of our workforce is under 34 years old. Similarly, uh, female work participation, so 52% of the jobs lost have been women in the workforce. And our business, I assume like most hospitality business, 55% of our team members are, are female. So we're very well correlated to those broader economic trends that we're seeing in the industry. And I think as an industry, we have an obligation to give data to the federal government to help prove to them that the, the great packages that they're giving us are keeping people in jobs. And as the, the restrictions roll off at a state level, what that's going to mean to broader employment if those support packages aren't there at that time. One of the t points you made there, I think I want to touch on, which is just about how in the spotlight, I think licensed premises are and have been. And I think that they have been used to being, particularly speaking with the New South Wales context because of lockout, but also because of the regulatory nature of, uh, of, of alcohol. Sample of one, but walking around and going out to venues the last few, the last week has been interesting because mm -hmm. cafes and restaurants just that I've been into, cafes mainly, just are not necessarily respecting what you see in a licensed premises in terms of floor markings, in terms of registration, in terms of sanitization, you know, hand sanitizers and things of that nature. Uh, and uh, one of the concerns that I have from a, a timeout perspective is the importance of instilling consumer confidence in, 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 in the repeat going out habit. So I would contend that uh, industry as a whole in its broadest possible construct from breakfast venue through to casino club whatever has a shared common goal in demonstrating very publicly that it is capable of running a COVID safe environment and I know that there's some work going on around that COVID safe program and I can't remember the detail in New South Wales at least they've launched I think a COVID safe um, sort of stamp on your venue that you can, if you are doing the right things, you can, which I think is really important. But um, it's if, if there is any strong urging, I'm, I'm really encouraging of industry to get its shit together and, and, and do the right thing and also for venues to encourage other venues to do the right thing because uh, people, I think, are in an experimentation phase of going out and if they see it is, is things are being done appropriately, then that FOGO, fear of going out element, um, disappear uh, and then you'll you know you continue on but if we don't see that then I think that you'll see this pent-up demand piece come and potentially potentially go yeah I think that's a really good point Mike because we're seeing at the moment our inbound calls into our reservations team are as high as they would be during a normal Christmas week so our demand is materially higher than our capacity at the moment which is great. So I think we've got great support from the public. If there should be uh, incidents of community transmission within our sector, I worry will that be maintained. Now, at the moment, we're doing the right thing. And I think, you know, I really thank the public. They are supporting the industry. They're getting back out into the pubs, but we're only as strong as our weakest links. So I think you made a really good point that we need to hold each other accountable to be doing the right thing. Yeah. Um I, yeah, and, and we just got to keep on on working on that. And and I think there's uh, we haven't had a chance necessarily to go into some of this, but I was interested in listening to what you're saying about the different venues because what we know from our own research at Timeout is that there's different different demographics looking at re-entering differently. And so Gen Y perhaps will go quicker. Gen X is going to sit back. Um, you know, so igloos down at Cargo or Bungalow 8, wherever you've got them. I've not been down to one myself. I'm going to save that up for, for the middle of winter. But, you know, there's there's a, a sort of wait and see approach, I think, for, for many, um, for various reasons. And uh, how, um, uh, you know, just getting this right um, and, and, and seeing a build is what we really want, isn't it? 
Yeah, I think, and that's the disappointing thing about what happened in Victoria on the weekend in that we weren't allowed to go from that 20 to 50 and that takes a bit of oxygen out of the momentum, which is exactly what we don't want to see in other states. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just want to ask a few questions. Uh, um, so last last episode we interviewed Shane, who's the MD of Select uh, Service Partners, this airport retail hospitality business. I think looked 160 venues, um, yeah, um, which is a, a significant number. And uh, and I think he reported that three are currently trading. These being coffee shops uh, in airports, largely serving coffee staff at the moment. And his, he summarised it as the double whammy. It's like travel and hospitality, you know, could, could not have got a, uh, well, you know, anyway, a, a double exposure. Um, but, but we asked him a bit about, you know, the overall recovery of airports and he likened the impact uh, of, of COVID as to that of September 11, which caused change as to air travel that you still see today, i.e., for example, 100 mil limit on carry-on liquids. Um, but the point is that we're still flying, right? you know, so there's a, a recovery. Um, he suggested that COVID will be similar, that we changes, but we will we'll trend back. Uh, do you agree with, with, with that, just as an overall observation? And then, and then if assuming you do, like what changes do you think there might be in the short term versus the, the long term? Yeah, actually, I really enjoyed listening to Shane. It was fascinating. And gee, you feel sorry for the guy having been exposed to airline industry and hospitality at the same time. It's hard enough with one of them. But I do agree with it. I think if you look at some of the changes that we're seeing post the reopening of the venues, we are seeing a pivot to order at table. So we use Mr. Yum as an order at table tool. And essentially, it's a QR code ordering system, so electronic menus. So we're seeing as high as 80% of our sales going through Mr. Yum at pubs like the College Lawn in Paran. So it's a really huge volume. And you'd think, okay, well, that's a pretty younger demographic. But then we look at some of our pubs in the outer suburbs like the Auburn in Hawthorne, more traditional demographic. They're doing 55% of their sales through Mr. Yum. Now, prior to the shutdown, we've had it in place for about six months and it, we were doing about 12% of our sales through it pre the shutdown. We're now up to nearly 30% of our sales through that tool. So that, that's been interesting because it gives the consumer an opportunity to browse the menu on a safe device, i.e. their phone that they've got on their person the whole time. Uh, it gives us the opportunity to uh, to capture data, look at trends, look at how can we personalise the offering to that consumer without being overly obtrusive and and taking data off a, a person. That we're trying to find that balance between being a big business, but at the same time, when Mike comes in, you know, we we know that he he loves a a pot of cozy. So like, there'd be nothing better than you know, you walk into a pub, we can say, okay, Mike drinks cozy. You got the publican come up to you say, oh, good to see you again, Mike. You know, here's the first cozy on us. So it's trying to find that great balance between um, being a big business and having quite a personalised approach to the patrons. So I think that's one thing we're seeing. I think. Um, we're seeing a uh, simplification of the pub experience. So, particularly in our Queensland venues, a lot of our menus were going for pages and pages and pages. So, we're looking for pubs in particular for a more simple menu, but good food done consistently well. So, those pub classics have to be done consistently well in order to bring back people back time and time again. I think we're also seeing... You know, really great kindness and sharing amongst industry. So I've got to know a lot of people within industry during the shutdown that I didn't know beforehand. And I think there's been great sharings of experiences and data with each other. And you know, I hope we can continue that forward. Uh, I think I think one of the other things that we might see out of this is does it create a new generation of restaurateurs and publicans because there's probably a whole heap of talented young people who had been priced out of the market because of some of the asset prices of 
restaurants and hotels? And, you know, is this a good entry point for those real up-and-coming publicans and restaurateurs now to get into their first pub, get into their restaurant? Because do you have more motivated landlords now that is willing to take a chance on some of these young up-and-coming guys? And, and I suspect we might look back in 10 years and see a whole new generation of restaurateurs and publicans who actually started during this time. So I think there's some of the the positives. Um, If you look at deliver to home, clearly a lot of uh, venues pivoted to deliver at home. To be totally honest, we didn't do that well. And if I look at some of the restaurants who did it, like I was ordering Grossi Florentino to home for 30 bucks for two people, like just beautiful, stunning pasta. Like no one's going to order a burger from the Duke of Wellington for 25 bucks when you can get Grossi Florentino delivered to your home for 30 bucks. So we pretty quickly realised that, you know, we're, we're punching well above our weight compared to some of that great work. So we focus more internally on how we could help the staff in the meantime and get ready for the reopening. So I don't think um, for us that's going to be a big factor. Or having said that, there's clearly some people, publicans, who've done it really well. And if I look at one of the venues we used to own, the Oxford Tavern in Petersham, like I was watching their socials and they were doing, from what I could tell about, you know, more than 30,000 sales a week, just delivering jugs of beer and great barbecue food to people's homes. So some did it excellent. We weren't one of them. <laughs> I think that, you know, it's as, as varied as the neighbourhoods and the and the audiences, isn't it? You know, and that, that part of the world in particular uh, has people who've moved in it for a particular reason and, you know, if you've cut off the reason they very moved, they're going to say, well, how can I get to this, you know? So it's good mm-hmm. to good to get some of those insights and, and, and understand yeah. how, how this varies venue to venue, Luke. Uh, yeah, just does do that, and feel free not to answer this, I don't, I don't mean this to sound negative, but I hope it wouldn't, but is that anything to do with scale? Do you feel it's the smaller businesses that have been able to pivot to that more um, better or, or faster or um, more accurately commensurate to their local market? Oh, I think that's a fair comment, Luke, and that's right. probably Oxford Tavern's a perfect example in that we used to own that venue. It's a, It was one of those venues we we uh, bought a group of three dive bars essentially in Sydney, so Foresters, Oxford and Norfolk, and we've since divested all those and, and found right. we're, we're not really the natural owner of those type of venues and the guys that have bought them off a sense of will no doubt do an excellent job. So there's nothing wrong with, you know, knowing what you're good at and knowing what you're not good at. Like we're not good at fine dining restaurants. We're not good at dive bars. We're not good at nightclubs. Like we, we think we're put pretty good at running pubs and I think knowing what you're not good at sometimes is as important as knowing what you're good at. You got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, and know when to run. You never count your money when you're sitting at the table. There'll be time enough. I want to ask about the event side of the business, Paul, and in particular coming into that October to December period, which for many has been in hospitality is the money quarter is where Christmas parties, the Melbourne Cup, all of that stuff happens. Um, what, what's your sort of thinking now based on what you're seeing in terms of demand already? Uh, and and then also, I guess, trying to overlay a bit of a future gazing question, overlay physical distancing on that world if it's still with us. Yeah, it's a really interesting point, Mike, because I think as of today, like every week we see our sales come back about 6 7% on the previous week. But once you get to November, December, this time last year, we would have had a very full pipeline of functions for November and December. So whilst our base trade, I think, will recover to November, December, I suspect venues are going to find it pretty tough because they just won't have the pipeline because it's now the time you're building that pipeline. So our pipeline is well over 50% down for November, December. I think part of being 
the positives of being a business like ours is that you can try and, I guess, capture spend of those large corporates and spread it across your venues. So that's the benefit. The downside is that it ends up being a material part of our revenue. So about 14% of our total sales are generated by functions. And I think you're going to see those large corporates take a far more risk-averse approach to large events this year than they would have previously. So you're not going to have people booking out bungalow to put a thousand people in there because they're already not potentially not coming back to work until later in the year and when they do come back to work they're got, not going to have a red and blue te- they're going to have a red or blue team so you know unless they're going to have a red or blue team christmas party i think uh it's going to be pretty tough this year have you um garnered any insight yet from some of your previous loyal event clients um as to perhaps new ways that they are approaching their events, um, whether it be, again, maybe breaking up into smaller lunches or, um, I don't know, have you got any insight there? Yeah, I think we're still seeing those team lunches, Luke, where people will work together. They'll still go down and have a feed at the pub on a Friday. Uh, What we're seeing, though, is a far more risk-averse approach in that they're just not looking to get big groups of people into the one venue in, in the short term. I think it will come back. I just don't think it's going to be this year. And I think there's also going to be a factor that when economic times are tough for this year, people are not going to be want to be seen to be having lavish Christmas parties. The Mm -hmm. counter-argument that some of the teams say to me is everyone's had a really tough year and employers owe employees a lot for the way that they've worked through this. So we're hoping that some employers will say, look, you know, thanks so much, guys. Let's go out and you know have a great night to thank you for all the hard work you put in this year. At the moment, we're not seeing huge bookings into November, December, but I think as restrictions roll off, that might hopefully it comes home like a freight train towards the end of the year. Uh, there's a couple of points in there I might just get your view on. Like one, one is is the overall cash flow management of businesses during this time, and I think that not necessarily your end, but the uh, Smaller businesses in particular have had a, a, a lesson learned in the hardest way possible for many, which is, you know, you can't run your business razor thin week to week, um, you know, particularly and being conscious of lockout, um, which fires then COVID, you know, but but coming into March, cash flow management wasn't wasn't particularly well um, looked after. I guess that the um, if, if, if we can continue this conversation as an industry, we can start planning at least, which is really what we're, we're hoping, hoping to do um, because I think that for everyone's, it's in everyone's interest to see as many of our venues uh, survive and then recover from this position. Um, one of the things that we talked about with Kathy Savile that was almost this concept of a blended event. I don't know if you sort of come across this, but this is this idea where some people are in the room with you, other people are um, away. Uh, are your are your events teams on things like that, and are your venues tech ready to support that type of uh, event if, if, if the market moves in that direction, even if it's only for a little while? Yeah. Look, to be honest, I think you can take a bit of a short-term approach as to what things are going to look like this year, but I wouldn't be structurally changing what we do because most of our venues, a lot of our venues have been around since 1880, 1890. They've been through a lot. And I just think if you're in a group of 200 people and you draw the short straw and you have to sit on your couch and watch everyone have a party while you have a few beers on the couch, it's it's not going to be much fun. So if if this was a long-term multi-year event, perhaps we would look at options like that, but it's not something that that we look at at the moment. Uh, Yeah, so it's going to be really interesting. I I just think we probably need to look at this year as a, a reset year for the industry. And your point about the working capital I think is a well-made point, Mike. And I think even for people like us, like the great thing about our business is you've got negative working capital. You're getting the cash from the punters over the till anywhere from 7 to 28 days earlier than what you're paying your staff and your suppliers. And structurally, that's been a real positive thing about our industry. But 
when the music stops, it really hurts. So you're trying to pay off your creditors at a time where you've got zero income. And I think that's probably going to be one of the learnings from this for our industry is that you do need that cash buffer for your working capital because many are now struggling to reopen because they didn't have that buffer, unfortunately. Yeah. Can I um, just jump on a point there? It was probably one of the the things I was most interested in in discussing with you. Um, you mentioned this is um, uh, perhaps not a multi-year event. Maybe, maybe it does extend to be multi-year, but probably won't. Um, how has your thinking around strategy for the business as a whole um, well, actually, I'll, I'll rephrase that. If COVID hadn't happened, one of the things we'd be discussing is your future strategy for um, the business. Has that changed? Has your long-term strategy changed? Bearing in mind that this, you know, in 10 years' time, we'll look back and this will just be a, a blip. It's a frustrating and annoying blip, but it will be just that. Um, has the longer-term vision for the business changed in any way? Um, and um, so that's, I guess, part one. Part two is what is the longer-term vision as it sort of stands now? Yeah, it hasn't changed, Luke. So ultimately, this industry, we see it as still... It's quite fragmented. So there's over 9,000 licensed venues across Australia and we think there'd be about a thousand that w- would fit our acquisition criteria. So we look for venues turning over more than seventy thousand a week, long-term leases, uh, rent to revenue ratios, sort of eight nine percent of revenue. Uh, we look to for them to be beverage led because we think that's our sweet spot running beverage led venues, and we continue to to look at those. I think. Um, Equally, we're looking at greenfields at the moment. So Sydney's perhaps one of those markets where it's been hard to buy assets because valuations for leasehold assets are a bit higher there than they are in other states. So we'll potentially look at building some venues there. And I think developers are quite motivated now to have good tenants in CBD venues. I think the removal of the liquor licence freeze will help our investment, particularly in the CBD as well. Um, Equally, we've spent a lot of money on what we call brownfields, so renovating existing venues and adding space to existing venues. And that always gives you your best return on capital, rooftop bars, developing unutilised space within venues. So we're continuing to do that as well. But leave aside all that, the most prized growth for us is organic revenue. And we were sort of growing organically at 5 6% pre that shutdown. So we've got to get back to that mark again. I think long-term, our vision and strategy hasn't changed. Certainly, um, we think it's a very solid industry to be in. Uh, We feel like we've been welcomed into the industry. We hope we can advocate for the industry as we continue to grow. And because it's such a big industry, the great thing about it is there's great diversity in approach. You can be the small bar owner, the large pub owner, the large group, and we can share and learn off each other. So ultimately, we think we can still grow to well over 200, 300 venues plus in the next two or three years. Yeah, right. Okay. Have Greenfield site made up, uh, um, I guess, a a significant percentage of your portfolio to date? No, we've only done two. So we've done Untied down at Barangaroo and that's gone very well. And then we did one last year uh, called State of Grace in King Street in Melbourne. Um, We're redoing a famous old pub in a suburb called Brunswick called the Sarah Sands Hotel in Melbourne. So we'll we'll open that next year and that we're looking at another sort of four or five that we can do next year. So we think we can do four or five greenfields a year for the next sort of four or five years. It's never going to be... Uh, 50, 60% of our growth, but we think yeah. it's, a, it's a good strategy because you get great returns on those investments, albeit they are inherently a bit more risky than buying the existing pub. It will be interesting as the, these cities change, isn't it? Because there's, there's just going to be opportunities for some um, that arise as asset owners have to review their own models, uh, you know, particularly in the CBDs, I think. Um, mm. And I was on a, uh, one of many Zoominars and uh, someone made the comment to me that uh, I guess large commercial landlords need to start thinking of themselves as service providers as opposed to asset owners. And I, I kind of 
have, a, have an inkling as to what that might mean for, for quality FMV operators who are able to move in and, and restrike new terms in, in, um, in, in, in places where um, there's just an audience needs to return. It's always better when we're together. Yeah, we'll look at them stars and we're together. Well, it's always better when we're together. Yeah, it's always better when we're together. So, yeah, look, standard questions that we ask every guest. Um, first thing is um, fav- favourite author, book or, uh, or podcast that you're listening to at the moment? Yeah, well, there's probably a, a couple of podcasts other than this one, of course, which is uh, <laughs> all listening. In fact, I've known Mike for, I reckon, 18 months. He, he's a very modest guy, so he didn't actually tell me you guys are running a podcast. <laughs> and, and I only stumbled upon it when one of your guests had a crack at Middle Park that we were running. So I listened to that <laughs> and I heard, oh, geez, I better start listening to this. So I, I, I listened to everyone since then. I guess uh, other than this podcast, of course, I, I, I really like Mark to scale, which is a Reid Hoffman podcast. There's been a really couple of great episodes on there recently where Danny Meyer of Union Square Hospitality Group has spoken about the experience in New York. And, you know, anytime I want to have a bit of a reality check about how lucky we are in Australia, I, I listen to that to gives you a totally different perspective on how we're going on this compared to other uh, countries. And probably another one I stumbled on recently was a podcast called Wind of Change, which was a really interesting one about growing up, being a child of the 90s, about whether the CIA wrote one of the Scorpions' uh, favourite hits, Wind of Change, to influence uh, the end of the Cold War. So, yeah, look that one up if you ever have time. It's a a great listen. Right. I'm going to double-click on the book topic. I'm assuming you, you know, to operate at your scale, you must um, look to sort of improve your leadership um, at time. Are there any books that you've read that you've found in particularly, uh, particularly um, helpful or um, insightful? Yeah, well, there's a, there's a lot. Of, I listen to about an audio book every couple of weeks. So it's the yeah. sort of thing where you walk the dog, go to the gym, and I tend to focus on, you know, non-fiction business type audio books um, from a really broad range of of backgrounds. So I think you look at things like Shoe Dog, the, the Nike story. Uh, there's a heap of great biographies out there from business leaders and they're the ones I really like. Yeah, okay. Um, we, we, you can, you can um, frame the next question or respond to the next question in relation to uh, isolation, lockdown, drink or what you would drink. Um, at any time, they may be one and the same, but um, what is your favourite drink, your go-to beverage? Yeah, I'm a pretty simple guy. Like, I love a beer. Um, more recently, I don't know if I'm going to have to change this now, given what's happened in the last week, but, you know, I love a Colonial Brewing Small Ale. <laughs> like, they're, they're, they're great beers. I really love their beers. And uh, in normal times, like, every time I get on a plane, there's something about having a gin and tonic on a plane. That's just one of those things, no matter the time of day, they, nothing tastes better than a G&T on a, on a plane. <laughs> what's the uh, go-to gin? Oh, whatever's going. Like, there's such great gins at the moment. Like, the Four Pillars gins, obviously, are brilliant. And, and I love the Shiraz gin, the Christmas gin, just by itself. Uh, but, but whatever's going, I'm pretty simple bloke that way. Okay. And uh, finally, for you, uh, I guess, professionally, who would you suggest has been a, a great source of inspiration or um, uh, potentially someone that's been a mentor for you that you would, you know, you would look to for advice or... Yeah, well, there's probably two. I mean, one of our early business partners in the pub was a lady called Vita Pepe, and she was my chief operating officer when I was at uh, HealthScope as well as Spotless. And I think the things that Vita taught me is just that relentless sort of curiosity, uh, always pursuit of always doing better, never being satisfied, always getting into the detail. Um, and I think the other thing that she taught me that I, I really focus on is is 
customer perception. So I'm a relentless reader of customer reviews. Every day, we get about 190 customer reviews a day. So I sit down, read every single one. You know, I often find myself on Facebook Messenger Saturday night trying to respond directly to a patron to understand what's happened and how we might be able to turn those situations around. So that was something that she instilled at me from a very early stage. Well, it's a, been a great chat, Paul. Um, um, we might uh, just take the opportunity to thank you for all that you've, um, you've done for the industry behind the scenes the last couple of years. You know, I've, uh, it's been, um, been great having you on board with the Nighttime Industries Association and, and um, there's a lot you do that sort of doesn't get talked about, but um, it's really appreciated and it's helped us at least get uh, our stuff together and, and, and move on and start advocating for businesses of all shapes and sizes across hospitality. And I think that's the one thing that, um, that is good coming out of this. I think that the, the small end of town in particular are conscious now of the need to have a voice and to be organised. And while it'll be unfortunate that we may lose some venues, I think the ones that do remain will kind of only unite over this and, and come together and, and you know, be more uh, active in, in some of these things like getting their data like managing the cash flow, like sort of getting a seat at the table and sort of driving the discussion forward. So on that note, just like to thank you once again and obviously wish you the best of, of luck as you continue trading in the next few months and, and into into what I'm sure will be a successful decade, future trade for ABC. Thanks, Mike. Thanks so much, Luke. Thanks, mate.